Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat. Welcome to podcast number 21. My name is Naaman Joker Anderson and I'm joined by my fellow host Joe McNamara. Hi everyone. A big thank you to our last guest Amy Rylance who talks about uh, working at Prostate Cancer UK, the impact of Covid um, and improvement projects. If you haven't had a chance yet please do go and take a listen. Uh, so we're pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Sarah Lianagay, who will be discussing her experience of cancer treatment and a website she started ticking off uh, breast cancer. Hi, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. No worries. So, Sarah, please could you tell us a bit about yourself and, if you feel comfortable, um, your cancer treatment? Yeah. Um, so I'm um, 47 and when I was 42, so five years ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, at the time, I was um, working four days a week, commuting in and out of London. I, I'm a lawyer, I was working in a corporate law firm. Um, I've got two children at the time, they were nine and 11, so fairly young. And um, I had a really, really busy life, like everyone, or you know, all of us. Um, so being diagnosed with breast cancer at that stage was a bit of a shock to the system. Obviously a shock because being diagnosed with cancer is quite a shock, but also just when you're sort of getting on with your life and you think you're invincible and you just go to work and you have your home life and you bring up your children and so on and so on. And then to have all of that sort of thrown into the air a bit with a cancer diagnosis was a real shock to the system. Um, so as I say, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. It was a strange diagnosis because I had a lump in my armpit, um, which is what uh, triggered my sort of anxiety or what's this is it's a bit strange and went to the GP and the GP wasn't really sure what it was and I I had a history of breast cysts which are nothing to do with breast cancer and are not a precursor to breast cancer at all um, and so she referred me to the breast clinic um, thinking it was probably just something to do with breast cysts um, I had a mammogram and an ultrasound which didn't pick up any tumour um, but a biopsy of the lump um, in my armpit um, showed breast cancer cells. So I had a breast cancer diagnosis, but not having found a lump in anywhere on my chest area by ultrasound or mammogram. And so I've had a number of scans, um, including the, the sensitive PET CT scan, um, which still didn't bring up um, a lump anywhere. So um, it's a an unusual diagnosis to have breast cancer without a, a breast lump because the lump in my armpit was actually the lymph nodes which were enlarged because the cancer had spread um, into my armpit and um, into the lymph nodes in my armpit so um, yeah slightly unusual diagnosis um, I then had surgery to move my remove my lymph nodes from my left armpit I had all lymph nodes removed Obviously, I didn't have any surgery to my breast area because there was no lump there in the first place. Um, I then had um, six months of chemotherapy, um, radiotherapy, Herceptin, which is a biotherapy. That's something that you have for a year. And now I'm on hormone therapy, which I started four years ago, and I will be on that for a total of 10 years. And um, with breast cancer, obviously, the treatment that I had was 
um, determined by the type of breast cancer that I had, because obviously there are a number of different types of breast cancer. My breast cancer was HER2 positive, which is why I had Herceptin, and also it's estrogen positive, which is why I'm now on the hormone therapy. So um, it's been quite a long slog, and obviously still being on the hormone therapy um, means that I'm still experiencing some um, side effects from that um, medication. Um, but yeah, that, so that's where I am. That's where I am today. Thank you for sharing. And I think it highlights that um, breast cancers, they can be quite incidental findings. Yeah, definitely. It's, it was um, it was a real um, dilemma, actually, because you just assume that if you're going to have breast cancer, that you will have a lump in your breast. And actually, that was something that I couldn't quite get my head around for a while. Um, but my breast consultant, um, he he's retired now. He must have been about 70 when he saw me. He was very, very experienced. And, he, and I remember him saying to me that it was incredibly rare. And in his career, he'd seen it um, half a dozen times. And so the fact that he was at retirement age, actually past retirement age, because he was at least 70, and had only seen it that small number of times, just reiterated how unusual it was. As well, from my experience, having done lots of breast reviews, lots of patients say, oh, you know, um, I didn't feel anything. And then I went for a, a mammogram, for example, and it was an incidental finding or, yeah, felt a lump one day. Um, and then that's it. Now I'm here for treatment. So, yeah, and it's actually really interesting because you also think um, breast cancer, you're going to have find it by a lump in your breast, but you can get lumps in um, another part of your chest area. So a friend of mine, um, her she had a lump near her collarbone and which turned out to be breast cancer. So it's actually, um, you know, whilst everyone is taught to, to check their breasts, which is great and, you know, every, all women should be doing it and men too because men can get breast cancer too. Um, it's important to know how to check and be aware um, properly so that you know actually you're not just checking your breast area but you're checking up to your collarbone and under your arms and and down that sort of side area between your 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 breast and your armpit um, because you can get an initial lump anywhere around there. I know just talking to other patients as well with cancers in other areas of their body it is any lumps or bumps isn't it really that anything that could potentially be different for you that you're not used to and isn't normal that was typically what we would say to patients is make sure you do go and get those things checked out so in terms of your cysts Sarah did you were you used to going to the GP with cysts to kind of then be referred straight away to the breast clinic yes so it I, I found a, a lump when I was 40 and obviously it rang alarm bells and I was petrified. I thought, oh my goodness, I found a lump. You know, I've got breast cancer. Um, went to the GP, got referred to the consultant and he immediately knew that it was a cyst. Um, I did have a mammogram and, and he said to me that it's quite normal for women in their early 40s upwards to develop these breast cysts and it's not just one or two you can just you can have loads of breast cysts in your breasts 
and it's very, very normal and it's hormonal and I don't know anything else about it other than the fact that it's normal and it's hormonal and it's not related to breast cancer. It's just a coincidence that I happen to have breast cysts and then down the line I also have breast cancer. So Sarah, you did mention a little bit about your actual treatment and you mentioned you did have radiotherapy. Obviously, Naaman and I being therapeutic radiographers, we're keen to hear about your experience of radiotherapy. Um, can you remember kind of going into the radiotherapy department, what that experience was like? Yes, I can, I can actually. Um, it's funny how kind of block these things out but then when you have to remember it it all comes flooding back so um I first of all I have my radiotherapy at a different hospital to the hospital where I have my chemotherapy and my surgery so that was at the outset a change for me going to a new hospital and when you're going through treatment and you get used to going to one place and then you have to change to a different location that that can be quite um, difficult. But having said that, um, everyone at the new hospital was incredibly kind and supportive and really, really nice. And so, um, you know, after the first appointment, you know, I felt at home. So um, it, it was fine after that. It was a slightly it's slightly further away from where I live so I had a slightly longer journey there and back and I think that's you know definitely a factor when you're having radiotherapy every day and um, for breast cancer for me it was every day for three weeks actually you know it was starting on a Wednesday so I had it Wednesday Thursday Friday break for the weekend following week break for the weekend following week break for the week, weekend and then another half a week um, so you're, for me, going in every day to a hospital a little bit further away from where I live was very different to going to a hospital closer to where I live um, every week for chemotherapy, for example. So I found the change, um, you know, it wasn't um, difficult or anything. It was just a change. It was just different to, to the first stage of treatment. Um, I went for a... a I can't remember what they called it, a radiotherapy sort of prep session where um, you go in and which actually is really important. And I found it really helpful because you don't really know what to expect from radiotherapy at all. And so it was quite nice to go in and to be able to see where you would be having the radiotherapy itself. Um, you, I had to lie down and have um, one of the radiographers sort of spend quite a lot of time putting me into different positions and machinery above me um, was moving around there was someone in the control room moving the machinery around and um, and I now I know that it was to get me in exactly the right position so that they could um, target exactly the right area and and what I was really surprised about was the tattoos so for breast radiotherapy I had radiotherapy on the left side because the lymph nodes on my left side were the ones with the breast cancer cells so that's why they thought that if there was breast cancer in the breast it would be in the left breast so um i had three very tiny dots it just looked like someone had um taken a biro and sort of stabbed me with the biro it was just very very small um 
and that I found that really interesting because that's obviously what they then use to line me up every time I went to get me in exactly the right position. So um, I found that really helpful going for the prep session because it was really good to find out um, how things were going to work in terms of going in every day, what, what to expect. Um, and then, you know, the fact that the there wouldn't be someone necessarily in the room with me while I was going to have the radiotherapy. Um, they, I, I was, um, because it was on my left side where my heart is, I had to do the holding my breath one, which again, before I went to this preparation session, I had absolutely no idea what to expect at all. And so um, I didn't know I was going to have to hold my breath, um, but because and you can explain this much better than I can, <laughs> because um, they needed to, I, I, they had to do it in a way that it wasn't going to affect my heart, and so you have to hold your breath, don't you? And you do. You have to hold your breath for quite a long time, and um, I actually had um, the contraption where you are, it's like you're going scuba diving and you've got a snorkel in your mouth and then I had goggles on and through the goggles I could see graphs and the graphs were my breath so it was really clever and when a red line got to a certain point I had to then hold my breath for a certain length of time watching the line go across the screen and when it got to a certain point I was allowed to allow my breath to go so I could start breathing again and um yeah that that was really hard actually that took a bit of getting used to because you're you're lying there in a very alien situation and um it's quite scary because obviously it's it's cancer treatment it's not something that you're familiar with you're in a hospital um you're in a room on your own you're lying on a, a a treatment bed and there's some machinery whirring around you and and it's it it's quite cold as well um because obviously the machinery has to be kept at a certain temperature i believe um and then on top of all of this i had to hold my breath and i, <laughs> I seem to think it was about 30 or 40 seconds which sounds like quite easy but i think um when you're slightly stressed yeah it's absolutely really quite hard um, to do um, so that that was also um, interesting and I think I got used to it as time went on I found it quite hard at first yeah. to hold my breath for that long and I think I was putting myself under pressure as well to yeah. you know hold your breath you've got to hold your breath you've got to hold your breath but actually um, the radiographers always said to me if you can't hold your breath then just hold it for as long as you can and we'll just come back and do another another round yeah. of it so it wasn't the be all and end all but I think because you are lying there and you just want to do everything right yeah. it was a bit stressful um so Sarah, can I just ask did you have yeah. any prep at all so ahead of that first treatment did you get any resources like a leaflet or a video or anything at all that kind of told you about what technically is called deep inspiration breath hold do you remember receiving anything 
I don't remember receiving anything and I remember that Naman you directed me to some resources recently yeah. because we were talking about it and I remember thinking I wish I'd had that yeah. when I had first had um, my first session because it was so helpful to have that beforehand. I, I did have a preparation session, like I say, I went in, they showed me where I was going to have it. I had the sort of preparation scans with the, the tattoo and the putting me in the position. And they did actually show me the contraption that I was going to be using yeah. and, and said, just, you know, try it on so you know what to expect and hold your breath. But it was really a kind of showing me what to expect rather than some instructions of going through how it. to use it. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I think it would have been helpful to perhaps have the video or a leaflet beforehand yeah. um, because you, there is a bit of time between the preparation session and when you go in for your first radiotherapy session. So I could have practiced a bit. I could have really prepared myself a bit better. See, Sarah, you will be pleased to know that the Respire project essentially created lots of resources now. And um, I'm really lucky I get to work with the professor that developed those. So Professor Heidi Prost, and she's actually coming on the podcast very soon to talk about all of her work that she does with breast cancer. But for anyone out there who does have patients or relatives that are going for breast cancer treatment and also therapeutic radiographers that are working in um, departments, these resources are publicly accessible um, and that leads me nicely onto the fact that these resources do also sit on your website. Um, so Sarah, I don't know, do you want at this point to just maybe talk a little bit about your website? Um, yes, okay. So um, after I'd finished treatment, um, I think I'd finished chemotherapy and radiotherapy um, I set up a website called tickingoffbreastcancer.com which is or was because it subsequently moved over but I'll tell you about that in a minute um, at the time I set it up as a website to help someone who like me had been diagnosed with breast cancer was going through breast cancer treatment because I felt completely overwhelmed by the information that was available on the big cancer charity websites and I have to say they are amazing I've got nothing against them in the slightest I think they're brilliant they have such a lot of information but for somebody who is in a state of shock a little bit apprehensive about going online being told don't go online don't google um it can be a little bit of a scary place to go and look for information, just practical information, even like you know, what do you what do you take to chemotherapy, or what do you, what do you expect, what to expect from radiotherapy, and so um, after I finished treatment, I I was a little bit more um, I was happier to go online, and I realised actually that not only are there the the big cancer charities with all their wonderful helpful information. But there's so many other organisations and smaller charities like yourselves who have such great resources and information and advice and practical tips. And you, you're not going to find it unless you know it's there. And actually, a lot of the time you don't know it's there. And you're not going to go on and, well, lots of people 
will not go on and Google and jump down the Google rabbit hole because it's just far too scary. And actually, you know, most doctors will tell you not to do that. Um, so by not doing that, you're not finding all this other wonderful information. And so I really felt that there was a, pl a place needed that would direct people to all the really good information out there. So that's what Ticking Off Breast Cancer com was um, it was practical information based on people's experience and my, myself included to start with it was me but it's developed over time so it was you know this these are the t the 10 things to know about radiotherapy if you're having breast cancer radiotherapy what to expect and then if you want to find out more information for example the um, the breathing resources that you were talking about we've got links so people can then go and find those. So um, it was really meant as a, a heads up and a, of what to expect and practical advice and directing people to where they can find lots of really helpful advice. Um, and I set that up, as I say, when I finished treatment. So that must have been about four years ago. And then earlier this year, in January, we moved the website, all the practical support um, and all our content over to Future Dreams Breast Cancer Charity, who are a larger breast cancer charity. They've been established since 2008. And traditionally, um, what they've done is to raise um, money for secondary breast cancer research, but also for other breast cancer um, charities who or other breast cancer organisations that they would give grants to. So, for example, um, they they might pay for a scalp cooling machine in a chemotherapy unit where um, a number of women are having um, breast cancer treatment. So, for example, that sort of thing. Um, and they're they're an amazing charity, and they recently changed what they're doing from just fundraising to now providing a support to women with breast cancer. Um, they have a house in Kings Cross in London which is called the Future Dreams House, which is the only dedicated breast cancer support centre in London, um, which is quite surprising given that breast cancer is the one of the um, most prevalent cancers in this country, with one in seven women um, being diagnosed with it in their lifetime. Um, so they have this wonderful, wonderful house, which they have... Re refurbished um, and decorated and it's beautiful and wonderful and they are now just in the process of trying to set that up with support workshops, support groups, um, talks, events with the aim for it to become a drop-in centre as well for anyone and everyone impacted by breast cancer in London and outside of London. Obviously, it's been heavily impacted by the pandemic and that has had a real impact on sort of being able to get things moving. Um, but, you know, slowly but surely this is happening. And so alongside of them doing that in person, they revamped their website and they approached me to ask if I would run their online support hub, which effectively is what tickingoffbreastcancer.com was. We've moved all our content over and we now um, 
as well as directing people to all the wonderful information that is out there and help and resources, which we've always done. Um, we also um, have our practical hints and tips and checklists. We publish personal stories from other people who are going through breast cancer or, or who have been through breast cancer about any aspect of treatment or post-treatment. Um, we post a lot of articles from people who are experts in their field. So we have a Q&A about scalp cooling from Claire Paxman, for example, who um, is a um, big part of the scalp, cooling, scalp cooling community and um, all sorts of expert advice in there. And um, we've got a page for friends and family so that they can go on and get some information about um, how to help their loved one going through it oh thanks Sarah it sounds amazing and I, I've definitely gone on and had a really good look and I know as part of Action Radiotherapy soon to be Radiotherapy UK that Naaman and I work for I know Naaman has uh, kindly helped support your radiotherapy section so it's great to have therapeutic radiographers feeding in like that and I'm sure Naaman yeah. will comment on all the work that he does um but Sarah I also realize that you have quite a big social media presence as well which is great in terms of just the the reach that you have. Do you find you get many patients that you're linking with through things like Instagram and Facebook and things now? Yeah, so um, the social media is, it's really just, a, I suppose it's a, a an extension of the website that, that I first set up. And I should say also that I now have three volunteers working with me on the website. And so um, it's, we sort of see ourselves as, even though we're now part of the Future Dreams family, we're still very much the ticking off breast cancer team. And our social media accounts are an extension of us and what we're putting out on the website. And it's a way for us to just communicate and engage and interact with people who are going through breast cancer treatment. Um, in a more direct way than through the website. So we're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and what we tend to do is we will talk on social media on those platforms about the content that we've got on the website. So for example, like you say, Naman really kindly reviewed all our radiotherapy um, content. So we now know that it's been certified by a radiotherapy um, so it's actually, you know, it gives it a little bit more credibility. And so um, when he had done the review, I was able to just go out on social media and say, you know, just remind you that we've got this content on radiotherapy. It's just being reviewed by, by Naman, et cetera, et cetera. And it just engages people and lets them know what's on the website. Um, but, but I suppose to your point as well, um, we do engage and interact a lot with people who are going through breast cancer treatment. So um, they may well comment on something, then someone else will comment and then we see conversations starting up. So someone might be asking, oh, in answer, you know, in a comment on the radiotherapy post, for example, I'm just about to start radiotherapy, Who, you know, I'm a little bit worried about it. Um, anyone got any tips? And then someone else will come in and give some advice so actually it's a really nice way for people to to interact with each other and not just with us as well 
Um, and also what we find is it's a really good opportunity for us to use social media um, to go out and ask people what they need and what information they need and what they're looking for and what questions they've got. So, for example, um, we also have a section on surgery, breast cancer surgery. And just today I put out a post asking people, um, if you could ask a breast cancer surgeon any question, what would your question be? You know, what do you want to know about surgery? What are you a little bit um, embarrassed to ask your surgeon about? What would you really like to know? Because we have a breast cancer surgeon um, who is reviewing all our content and going to produce a, a guest article on really anything that isn't there and answer the questions that people are, are asking. So it's a really good way to to find out what people want to know, people who are going through it right now or have finished treatment because we also cater to those who have finished their treatment. So it's just a really good way to interact with breast cancer patients and just know exactly what they want to know really. Yeah, th thank you for sharing. Um, I should say quickly, thanks for the opportunity to work with you just on those pages and stuff. I know we did it with Action Radiotherapy, soon to be Radiotherapy UK, but it's something that one of our previous guests, Rachel Moses, said a lot is, you know, if you're promoting a profession, promoting what you do, try and do some, you know, it doesn't have to be for you. It's you are helping patients in some way, even if it is that information. So I suppose just, just to follow up, if you don't mind me asking, Sarah, what what sort of advantages do you think there is or there are uh, through social media of patients connecting with clinical colleagues, so, so such as like uh, Joe and I as therapeutic radiographers, for example? I think um, I think it just informs and educates the patients. Um, when you're going through treatment and you are going to your appointments, the environment that you're in, and especially with COVID and people having to go on their own, you're, you're sitting in a room with a, a surgeon, oncologist, or you're in a um, radiotherapy suite with the radiotherapy um, team, you know, whatever the situation is, it, it's quite stressful, it's quite scary, and quite often you forget what you're going to ask, or you get home, you think, gosh, didn't ask that question or you then have another question you think I don't know um, where I'm going to get the information from because I have another question and I think the thing about social media and with professionals interacting with patients it's it's not a question it's not a case of a patient having a question about their own personal situation and wanting an answer and trying to find someone on social media who can give them an answer uh, that that's not the situation at all it's more i suppose a, a, a generalized um way of educating and informing and learning about treatment treatment plans so for example um there's clinical trials so there are lots and lots of clinical trials for breast cancer patients, particularly those with um, secondary breast cancer, stage four breast cancer. And not all oncologists know about all the trials that are available. And so we work closely with an organization called Ancora who are creating a 
I suppose it's a database that makes clinical trial information easier to access for both patients and oncologists. And by working with them, we're bringing that information to the patients, but we're also bringing the information to the professionals, and then we're putting those in touch with each other. And so um, there's a then a general discussion around clinical trials involving Ancora patients, oncologists, and and medical teams. And so um, I think it's just I mean it's such a big question. I <laughs> kind of think. Um, I could talk about this for quite a long time because there are so many ways in which social media can help patients find out more information and ask generalised questions, but also for professionals to really see what patients need. So I think certainly since I was diagnosed five years ago, even in the last five years, there's been a huge push towards integrative medicine, whereby the, the school of thought is that you go for your conventional medicine, your chemotherapy, radiotherapy, surgery and, and everything, but you complement that by exercising, eating a healthy diet, managing stress, by perhaps practicing yoga or mindfulness or whatever it is and integrating those other forms of therapy into your conventional medicine and there's been a I've noticed a real push on that and a real trend um, I think trends probably the, the wrong word because that tends to suggest it might go away but I don't think this is I think it's only just going to bit get um, more emphasis on it and you know that sort of thing is enabling um, professionals to to talk to patients through the social media about the importance of say exercise and eating a healthy diet and managing stress and and all these you know really really helpful things um, and it's just a great platform for getting that information out there not everyone has their own website and actually um, that used to be the place where people would post their information, but now you can just um, talk to people directly um, on social media. It's really, really helpful. Yeah, sorry. No, it was good. I thought it was well explained. Uh, if we were interviewing, I think I would have given you some marks there. <laughs> sorry, it was more of an interview question, I think. It was just interesting. As you said, the shift towards social media at the moment, it it's it's amazing um and joe i know you've been doing some work um around public health and prehab yeah so as part of a fellowship that i did with macmillan uh, we were looking at prehabilitation rehabilitation personalized care and absolutely sarah is about making sure that everyone who has contact with patients has the ability to be able to help inform those public health messages that ultimately could have a really positive impact on patients lifestyle patients you know overall health and yes you obviously from our perspective have cancer we want to treat that cancer but we also have the ability to make great adaptations in your own life that hopefully will reduce your risk of other diseases you know we're really good now at curing cancer but we also have that opportunity then 
to make impacts on heart disease, uh, on blood pressure. And I know you mentioned it a few times there, and I know uh, looking at your book and going through that, just the stress and anxiety that maybe some women face even before they get diagnosed with cancer just being on that treadmill you know i've got to work until seven o'clock then i've got to get the tube home then i've got to make sure the kids dinner on i've then got to take them to hockey um then i get in then i have my dinner then i make their school lunches you know that whole treadmill is very fast paced and then you add cancer in the mix and actually sometimes that forces people to reevaluate their lives. And I know talking to cancer patients a lot through education, sometimes it's the, it's almost like the time that they need to reflect on, am I doing all of this for me and my family? Is this what we really want to be doing? And cancer can sometimes reprioritize what's important. Um, and I know that that's something that you've talked about as part of your book. And I think, you know, having that ability to just reframe, but absolutely from a healthcare professionals, every contact does count. If you don't know the guidelines around every contact count, you have to read it. Naaman and I will definitely post it. You need to read it because the impact is important. And, um, you know, making sure that patients realise the risks that they are putting themselves under if they are smoking or drinking excessively, you know, the impact that doing your 10,000 steps a day can have not just on your physical health, but also mental health as well. So absolutely, I think it's really important that we do treat patients with personalised care, but offer them that holistic care and support as well. And that exercise element, um, I love my exercise and I talk about it to every patient if they want to hear it or not, to be honest, because it's just 30 minutes a day and that can be hoovering. So uh, the World Health Organization, they class hoovering as exercise. So that counts. Um, there's a lot of evidence now, um, which I can find a link and we can post it with this podcast, but around just for chemotherapy appointments, just walking to chemotherapy, um, whether it's half an hour, 20 minutes, that can be you know, a precursor to, well, better outcomes if you want and not having some side effects. Um, so yeah, that, as Jay said, there, there's a lot of research going into it now. Um, Sarah, I know we touched briefly on sort of the advice that you um, you know, that you're now giving through ticking off um, breast cancer through your page and also through the Future Dreams charity. Um, would you feel comfortable sharing what kind of advice you were given during radiotherapy? The advice that was given to me? Uh, so whether it's around, you know, eating habits or skincare or tiredness? I think from memory, I think there was limited advice given to me at the time I think I I wasn't told anything about diet or exercise I was told that I would feel tired and that it wouldn't be apparent to start with and I but it would as time went on it would I would gradually feel uh, expect to feel tired as time went on because I had 15 sessions as I said with breaks of two weekends um, so they said expect to feel tired and you'll need to use a good cream for your skin so that it doesn't blister and actually I I was told start putting the cream on now and I think that must have been a week before and that was the best advice 
that I was given. And I know not not everyone is told that now. Um, and I, if I talk to anybody who's about to start radiotherapy, I always say to them, stop putting the cream on now because um, there's no point in waiting until you start or until your skin starts to to get red or sore. Um, it's preventative, not just treating the symptoms. Um, so that was some really that was really good advice given to me. But um, I was given the exercise sorry exercise advice when I was going through chemotherapy, um, which actually surprised me because I thought, oh, I'm having chemotherapy, I'm going to need to rest and you know rest up and you know preserve my energy and you know allow my body to to cope with this. I'm just going to have to I'm going to be in bed or I'm going to be lying on the sofa. Um, and actually, the last thing I felt like doing was exercising. But my chemotherapy, one of my chemotherapy nurses made it quite clear to me that, no, so you do, you do need to get out for a walk every single day, even a short walk. And I did that throughout chemotherapy and it really made a difference. I wasn't a big exerciser before chemotherapy. I do much more exercise now since I've had treatment. Um, but I I did what I could within the limitations that I felt I was able to because I did feel dreadful through chemotherapy. But with radiotherapy, I I wasn't no I exercise wasn't discussed. But um, you know, what do you guys say to your patients about exercise through radiotherapy? Is that something that can help with the fatigue that you um, experience? I always say, that's my line I think I use with every patient, ironically, the best answer to fatigue is exercise. There's yeah. so, so many sort of journal articles, blogs, whatever you want to read, not just the sort of the mental well-being side of things, but the physical side of things, just to keep moving, even if it is just walking or parking a little bit further away, walking somewhere, um, exactly as you said, there, there's a lot for it. It's interesting as well, Sarah, because at the minute I'm doing a, a piece of work um, with a couple of colleagues up in the northwest, and we're actually reviewing therapeutic radiographers' knowledge around lots of different prehabilitation and rehabilitation themes and areas. And a lot of therapeutic radiographers feel hypocritical about maybe giving it health advice to patients. Some of them feel that actually they don't have the education that they need to be able to offer this advice. You know, when you talk about diet and exercise, should it really be a physiotherapist that's offering that advice? Um, and we've also found as well that, you know, some um, therapeutic radiographers don't necessarily have the communication skills to maybe have difficult conversations with patients. If you have a morbidly obese patient who is going through a really tough time in their lives, you know, the fact that you're having to talk to them about diet and they're like, are you joking? I've got cancer. Why do I want to now start focusing on my diet? And this is typically why people will avoid having those conversations with people. Yeah. Um, so we are doing lots of work at the moment around evaluating some e-learning resources. And this will go on to develop some research, um, hopefully in this area. But it is really interesting that your experience is quite typical, that therapeutic radiographers maybe aren't having those conversations. And don't get me wrong, I think there are lots around the country, really good practice, you know, but I think it is those 
therapeutic radiographers that are maybe educating themselves or doing continual professional development in that area um, or go out and do the research, look at the evidence base um, or relying on the consultants. And we we know that actually it's us being able to see patients every single day that you can make those tiny little suggestions around what you could do. So when they when people go, oh, you know, I'm struggling with fatigue. I always talk to patients about how how is your sleep? You know, there's lots of educational resources around sleep hygiene. And yet, actually, it yes, you might want to refer to um, physical activity and exercise. But there is also lots of resources around sleep hygiene, when to exercise, when not to exercise, how having a routine is really beneficial for patients to get into a nice mindset, mindfulness. You know, there's loads of amazing apps now. There's nice sleeping apps so that it starts to remind you when to wind down, when to turn off electrical devices and things. And I always laugh, actually, because when I started at Macmillan and the chief medical officer said to me, right, Joe, we're going to develop these resources. Why don't you look at sleep? And I just went, I'm a therapeutic radiographer. I don't know anything about sleep. Anyway, I took on that uh, that bit of work with such vigour so you could ask me lots of things about sleep. I could probably do a podcast on it. Maybe we will, Naaman. <laughs> Maybe. I think that's really interesting what you're saying about the um, therapeutic radiographers being um, a little bit hesitant to give this sort of advice to patients. Because I think from a patient's perspective, it would be really welcomed because you look to the person who's giving you the treatment, i.e. the therapeutic radiographer, as knowing everything there is to know about the treatment, the side effects and how to deal with the side effects. And so if they were to say, you know, how is your sleep? And then you're like, well, actually, it's dreadful. Well, here are some tips. You would take it on board because that person who's giving you the treatment is the expert in that and is doing it day in, day out for hundreds of different people all the time. And so you can rely and trust that person's advice rather than having to sort of go away, do a little bit of internet research, which actually a lot of people won't do because they're frightened to go onto the internet, hence why I started particular breast cancer, you know, it, it's it's getting the information from the professionals, i.e. the radiographers, to the patients, which is so, so important. And, you know, we're there, we want to know it, we want to be told this, because it's all going to help us at the end of the day deal with all the side effects. Yeah, I completely agree. As, as Joe said, making every contact or every conversation count. Um, and I know you mentioned about getting um, quite good skincare advice, Sarah, that, that's really good to hear. And I know our society and College of Radiographers, so last year they produced some fantastic skincare leaflets, which I think encompass lots of questions that patients have asked before. So can I go swimming? You know, can I wear deodorant? Can I shave? All of these sort of things that were nice and very concise in a leaflet, which I know you've kindly added to your um, to the web page as well, which I know is, yeah, I, I love handing them out. They're, they're really, really concise and good. Um, so are those leaflets available at the radiotherapy um, treatment areas in the hospitals? Because they're the sort of things that we want to to pick up when we go for our first session or our prep session and go home and you know read a, a simple leaflet with some simple straightforward advice. I think 
to be perfectly honest, because of COVID, we've stopped handing lots of things out. Um, I have had a workaround and I'm, I've been emailing almost every breast patient uh, or any other kind of site, which I know they might be at a higher risk of a skin reaction. Um, so just, yeah, just emailing them if, if they're obviously comfortable doing so. If not, I've, yeah, we're looking at printing, printing them out. I know the Society of College of Radiographers last year, uh, they did send quite a few out to lots of departments to trial. Uh, and mostly all departments have looked into how to re sort of get them printed out locally and hand them out a bit more. Um, so it, it's definitely there. I, I think emailing them at the minute is quite nice because obviously you've got it on your phone. Again, it depends on um, if you know if your patient has any protective characteristics that might stop them being technologically savvy. Um. I think as well, um, it does require the departments to engage. Um, so you know, you I know from experience that there are some departments that offer slightly different advice to the Society College of Radiographers, and I think it is really important to note that everything that the society and college has produced is evidence-based it's research informed and i think from a patient's perspective i would certainly want to know that that the information that i'm being given is backed up by the research which a lot of the time we always assume so i myself have been a patient and i take whatever my consultant says to me is gospel yes i will absolutely do whatever you want me to do even though in other areas of my life i definitely don't listen to anyone but um but from that perspective absolutely so i think it is important that we are looking at evidence-based research using the research as much as we can because we are advising patients about how best to look after themselves and um i know Naaman, you're looking to do an amazing project um, and take this forward, um, which you might want to divulge, you might not within the podcast, but I definitely think that it is really important that all of the advice that we offer patients has that research behind it so that you can truly say with confidence, we know that you doing this is going to support you this is going to make a positive outcome for your treatment, your prognosis will improve or your um, side effects will be less as a result of doing this. So, you know, it is something that we are really passionate about. And obviously, as part of the podcast as well, everything that we do, we try and support with that educational um, perspective, also having that research and evidence base behind it. Um, do you find that that's maybe beneficial, Sarah, from your perspective, linking maybe more with clinical colleagues and, and doing your own investigation? Because I would just worry that sometimes patients don't have the education to be able to sift through some of that information that's presented. That's exactly it. That's what we do. So um, they, they might not have the education. They might not have the... I suppose the bandwidth to do the re research either because it's in a state of shock, feeling vulnerable, um, not knowing which is up and which is down because their whole world feels like it's been turned upside down. And so actually what we do is we link to really reputable sources. So for example, the information that Naman has provided on um, the radiotherapy section of the website that comes from a very credible source. We trust it. We will refer people to it. Um, we wouldn't just link to 
any old article, we have to be quite comfortable and we will usually go with the well-known charities, organisations, societies, um, and we will always ask anyone who does a um, an expert, what we call them an expert advice article, you know, what their credentials are. So we prefer, obviously, to have um, people like Naman, um, we have a number of breast surgeons who help us out, oncologists, um, trained cancer rehab, fitness instructors, so people who have had the training and have the qualifications. Um, yes, very much so. It's it's definitely really helpful to get the information from them onto the website because we feel that that's what's going to help the patients at the end of the day. I completely agree. It's that evidence base kind of behind it. And I suppose, again, I'm going to say it again, but thank you for the opportunity to sort of help with all the the pages oh, and stuff like that. Nathan. Just honestly, we we couldn't do what we do without people like you giving us your time and just you know casting an eye over our content telling us what we're missing or um what perhaps shouldn't be on there um what we do is we only provide practical tips so from patients we are patients giving other patients advice and so it's really really helpful to have people who are experts in their field to come on and um check what we're saying really because at the end of the day we're not medics we're not professionals we're just saying oh this is what I took to chemotherapy this is what I prepared this is how I prepared for radiotherapy um you might want to do this as well so having someone like yourself look at that and say yeah that's absolutely fine and here's some extra links that you might want to direct people to is fantastic and that's just that's going to help an endless people it's brilliant I do have to say, though, vice versa, being a healthcare professional, I learn so much from patients um, and it is hugely beneficial. You know, when you're telling your story, it's really it's just really interesting to see your perception of things. So there there are times as a healthcare professional we jump in and go, oh, well, no, that's actually a CT scan or no, this is what we're doing here and then. But actually hearing it through a patient's words, you know, the whirring of the machine, it's not necessarily something, you know, should we be saying this is what the whirring of the machine is? But it's things like that, that if you actively listen to what patients are saying, you will learn a lot more and you can help advise then further on down the line to other patients to really say this is what the experience is going to be like um, rather than from my perception well, I'm used to doing X, Y, and Z. It's just going to be really quick and easy, really simplistic. You won't get any side effects. We're absolutely fine. Let's go. When actually, from a patient's perspective, they can go, well, that's, from my perspective, that's absolutely not the case. So I think you're right. And I, I think everyone I speak to in your position who is a professional who perhaps hasn't been through breast cancer treatment says exactly the same, that everyone says, you know, I say this to my patients, I say that to my patients, and then when actually I listen to patients, I realise maybe I should be describing it in a different way or explaining things slightly differently. Um, and, you know, on our website, we publish personal stories on 
from patients, so people talking about an aspect of treatment or the, the general um, experience or whatever it might be. And so for um, you know people in the professional side of things, it's interesting for you to read those because then you get even more of an idea of what people's experiences and perceptions of treatment are. And actually, it is that it's really interesting because um, people who have read my book. So I wrote the book about my own experience, which is, I mean, I have I'm not medical medically trained or have medical background or anything in the slightest. So my book is describing the wearing of the machines, or there was this big donut that I had to lie in the middle of, and it went up and down and you know, just explaining things from the perspective of someone who is so far from a medical background that you could get. And actually, the professionals who have read it have said exactly the same as you. It's actually really helpful to get that perspective from the patient so that you can um, understand their way of thinking. And I think there's I don't know whether it's always been the way, but there's certainly um, a really big, again, a big push in sharing the patient's voice and getting the patient's perspectives. Today, I was on a call for the Thames Valley Cancer Alliance, which I'm part of the patient, I can't even remember what it's called, it's all, it's PPG, and I don't know, what, I, don't, I don't even know what that is, um, but it's... Don't worry, I bet you half of the members don't know either. <laughs> no, because we're all patients, so we don't know what these um, abbreviated uh, groups' names are, um, but it's about, it's all about patients um, sharing their experiences, having the voice, so that cancer treatment and cancer uh, treatment experiences can be improved and I wrote the chapter on the patient's experience for the new UCONS UK Oncology Nursing Society manual which came out this year and again you know that's something that they're trying to do with that which is to you know that's for trainee nurses oncology mm. nurses and it's it's a chapter in my words about what I went through, how I felt, so that they can, they're not just learning about the drugs and yeah. how to um, put a cannula in and this, that and the other. They're actually also learning about how does a, how does a patient perceive their treatment and what are their big concerns and what are their pain points and, yeah. and so on. And so I think it's, um, and this podcast as well, you know, having someone who's been through it like myself, and if you've got radiographers listening to this, that's going to be really helpful to understand um, where a patient is coming from. So I think the more that professionals can listen to patients, the better, really. Yeah, and I often find that we do it a lot. So a lot of the higher education institutes that teach allied health professions, medics, nurses, we use service users a lot to help educate students because we recognise the importance. But sometimes that stops. So as part of continual professional development, you will be, you know, you'll be a band five qualified member of staff and you'll have that patient voice echoing through everything you do. But as you get more experienced 
and you have longer in the profession, you kind of lose sight of that or things change and the perception then of the patients change. So your your um your kind of explanation of deep inspiration breath hold, a um you know, a qualified member of staff may never have really listened to a patient talk about that experience from their perspective, but that's because they trained 20 years ago and they haven't had that opportunity to listen to patient voice. So absolutely, it's something I know Naaman and I are really passionate about, hence the podcast, uh, which <laughs> which hopefully will really help resonate with people. So Sarah, we are ticking on for almost an hour. So one of our longest podcasts, but you've been absolutely amazing. Before we wrap up, can I ask, are there any top tips that you would want to give to any healthcare professionals treating cancer patients? that you think will help improve their practice or patient experience? Um, I do have some tips and I would say that I think for me, all the healthcare professionals who treated me were amazing and wonderful. And, you know, I do think on the whole, everyone's doing an amazing job, especially given the current circumstances. So, you know, I do want, to give some tips but I don't want that to be seen as me um you know saying actually everyone's doing a really bad job because that's so far from the case um but what I would say and it's something that we've discussed a lot this evening it's about educating the patient and it's about informing the patient because I think some healthcare professionals may feel that they're helping the patient by not telling them everything because they don't want the patient to stress. But actually, that's counterintuitive because actually you then find out down the line about something and you stress about it even more. So I, I just think, you know, the big tip really is to be open and upfront in as gentle a manner as possible because obviously the patient is going to be really stressed and feeling very vulnerable but just giving the right amount of information at the right time and whether that is by emailing the leaflets Naman, or handing out the leaflets to them or directing them to a website where they can watch a video of someone um talking them through how to prepare for the, the the holding of the breath, for example. Um, you know, it doesn't all have to be done in the consulting room or in the treatment room. It can be, look, here's where you can look at when you're feeling up to it. Um, but it's, yeah, my, my big tip is just to, to not hold back, but to be as, as informative as you can be. Oh, thank you very much for the tips, um, Sarah, and thank you for everyone listening to Rad Chat um, this evening. So your hosts today have been Naaman Joel Cranderson and Joe McNamara. Uh, a huge thank you again to our guest, Sarah Lianagay. Uh, so if you're utilising this podcast for uh, CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted with this podcast, uh, along with the links to resources and literature discussed uh, within the podcast. To receive your CPD digital badge, please complete the form linked to the podcast. Um, you may have already seen, but we have now received a Society and College of Radiographers accreditation uh, for CPD, which is amazing. So for anyone having to do their HCP, HCPC audit, this is a great way to demonstrate CPD. Naaman, you should use the clapping hands that we've got now on our podcast <laughs> software. 
um so our, our next guest to feature will be dr liz o'ryden uh discussing her experience of breast cancer as a patient and as a surgeon um we have something very exciting to share with you all too uh, we'll be officially relaunching the podcast next week um so look out for our logo and branding changing all over social media um thank you uh, and good night thank you good night